Acts chapter number 2. I can remember the day in 2002 when I met a really cute blonde girl from Texas named Jenny Lee O'Brien. And those are some impressive jawlines, I know. I can't find my jawline anymore. I'm working on it, though. Um, I'll I'll spare you the story because a lot of you know, but um, went to Bible college to study to be a pastor and and met Jenny there who went to Bible college to marry a pastor. So that's what you do. She felt like she wanted to marry a pastor. And so I heard her playing the piano and singing and I was interested in music and I was interested in blondes. And so... She fit those categories. Long story short, I met her, fell in love. And in 2005, um, I engaged, I, we got engaged. I proposed to her in our old church building, actually. And uh, I'll spare you the details of that amazing story. Um, but it was at the same altar um, that I surrendered my life to God to follow his call in my life to preach. Same altar I prayed that prayer on and um, asked her to marry me. And I had, I had a Bible there that had her name on the front, but it didn't say Jenny Lee O'Brien. It said Jenny Lee Prater. And the ring was on the Bible ribbon, which was in a, a verse in Proverbs that says, He that findeth a wife findeth a good thing. And she opened that and smoke started to rise out of the pages. <laughs> and... Uh, Got on one knee, asked her to, to marry me. My poor parents, they were up. We had the sound booth clear up, you know, by the ceiling in the back of that old building. My parents had their heads poking out the top of that, watching us the whole time. You know, because pastors and pastor's wife, they can't, they can't kiss or do anything. No hanky-panky before marriage. And so my parents were making sure that, that the man of God stayed whole and healthy. But they didn't follow me after that. So that was good. Isn't she beautiful? I mean, seriously, wow, amazing. On that day there was June 24th, 2006. And that was right before she walked out um, into the auditorium. She was in, back there with her dad. And I can remember the pianist started playing, Here Comes the Bride. You know, bri- weddings today, they have all kinds of weird songs. To like walk people up the aisle. Like, what, what happened to Here Comes the Bride? Can I get an amen? Can I get a witness? I'm going to put an ordinance in our wedding policies from now on that says you can't be playing any songs from Aladdin or Frozen or the Beatles or anything else. Um, you got to play Here Comes the Bride just from a piano, man. Just Here Comes the Bride. Well, that's what happens. And she was uh, walking my way. And on that day, That promise she gave me a year earlier, yes, I will marry you, it became fulfilled. It's awesome. And a lot of you have a story kind of like that, where you just look forward to that promise being fulfilled, and it was. In Acts chapter 2, my wife would probably appreciate her, there we go, her picture being taken down. In Acts chapter 2, an even greater promise was fulfilled to the church. And that's the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's why I'm titling the message today, not here comes the bride, here comes the spirit. 
Just like I had waited for the promise of my bride to be fulfilled, these early believers had been waiting in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit to be fulfilled. And it was. Listen, church, the coming of the Holy Spirit changed everything for these early Christians. See, they knew all about Christ. They'd walked him for three years. They knew scripture. They quoted it often. They heard his mission. They committed to fulfilling it. Yet one thing was lacking, and that was the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. See, a fireplace can be fully prepared. The wood and kindling can be arranged perfectly, yet nothing will happen without a spark. A car can be in great shape. It can have a well-maintained engine, a fresh oil change, brand new tires. But without fuel, it won't go anywhere. The early Christians in Jerusalem were gathered. They were ready to act. Yet one key ingredient wasn't yet present, and that was the Holy Spirit. He was the spark they needed to burn. He was the fuel they needed to run. And so it is with our lives. So it is with Fellowship Baptist Church. We can have our doctrine all figured out. We can act morally and ethically in our community. We can know our Bibles inside and out. But without the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church, we will accomplish nothing for the cause of Christ. John Stott said, as a body without a breath is a corpse. So the church without the spirit is dead. This begs the question, if the Spirit is as important to the church and and, and as important to the believers as oxygen is to our bodies, what exactly did the Spirit accomplish in the lives of these early believers when He came? And what can He do in our lives today? That's the answer, or the question, the text asks, and we have a twofold answer today. First, the Holy Spirit fills believers. Look at verse 1 through the first part of verse 4. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rush or of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. If you remember, Christ had ascended to heaven a week earlier. Now we have 120 of his followers who stayed in Jerusalem waiting for the Holy Spirit. Because before Jesus left, he told them in chapter 1 to wait for the promise of the Father. He told them that they would receive power after that the Holy Ghost would come upon them. So in obedience to that, these 120 believers waited in Jerusalem. They prayed together. The Bible says they had tremendous unity among themselves. Then on the Jewish feast of Pentecost, the promise was fulfilled. That word Pentecost means first fruits. This was one of the three main feasts on the Jewish calendars and it took place place 50 days after the Passover. Tens of thousands gathered in Jerusalem from every land to celebrate this day, including these 120 believers. As they were gathered together on the day of Pentecost... God gave them some miraculous signs that we just read about to signal the coming of His Spirit. The first thing they noticed was a sound. It sounded like the sustained winds of a hurricane or a tornado. It's like the entire house where they were gathered was filled with the sensation of this mighty wind. Next came the fire. 
This flicker of brightness like a tongue of flame that rested above each head in the room, yet nothing or nobody was burned. Now, it's important that we see descriptions, the descriptions of these things like they are. The text tells us that it was, sound, it was a sound like a mighty wind, tongues like fire. So it's not literal fire, it's not literal wind, but the appearance of these things. So then why is, this, is the coming of the Spirit accompanied by these signs that are so dramatic? Well, the sound and sight were meant to be visible, audible signals of the presence of God. This was a supernatural event. There was nothing normal about it. I want you to study with me today. There's going to be quite a bit of opportunity for you to learn today. The mighty wind, no doubt, reminded the believers of the power of God while the fire brought to mind the purity and presence of God. Let me explain. Wind in the Bible has long been associated with the Spirit of God. Jesus made this comparison in John chapter 3 verse 8. In his conversation with Nicodemus, he said, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. Here's, here's his connection. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. He associates Spirit with wind. The same thing happens in Ezekiel chapter 37. This is a really neat passage of Scripture. God takes Ezekiel the prophet in this vision to a valley full of bones. God asks Ezekiel, Can these bones... Can they come to life? I love Ezekiel's answer. God, you know. That's right. God, you know. So in this vision, God causes the bones to assemble into skeletons and then muscle and skin to cover them. But the bodies were still lifeless. That's when the wind, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, blew through the valley and gave life to all who stood there. It's amazing. In the same way, on the day of Pentecost, the sound of of a mighty wind was a reminder of the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. Then we got the fire. The fire reminds us of God's presence and purity. If you remember back in the book of Exodus, we're told of Moses, who was a fugitive from Egypt. He was a shepherd in the middle of a desert. All of a sudden, he, he saw a bush on fire. But the bush wasn't being consumed. So when he turned aside to to see what was going on, God began to speak to him from a burning bush. And what did he tell Moses? He said, remove your shoes. Because the place in which you stand is holy. It's pure. And it's pure because God is present. So the wind and the fire show us that God is pure, that he's present, and that his power gives life. And then verse 4 says that upon the arrival of, of, of these signs... This wind and fire, the believers in this church were filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. This was was like the life-giving power they'd been waiting for. Until he came, they were were like lifeless bodies in Ezekiel's vision. But, But now they were filled with the power of God. Think about this. Jesus' ministry, it began with the filling of the Spirit at his baptism. Throughout his ministry, the Bible consistently tells us that Jesus was filled and empowered by the Spirit. Now on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit filled and empowered the first Christians. But hear me, it doesn't stop there. Today, the Holy Spirit fills all believers. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But as many as received him... 
to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. This tells us that everyone who receives Christ is given by God the power to become a son or daughter of God. What is that power? It's the Holy Spirit. At the moment of salvation, each of us is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Romans 8, 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Ephesians 4.30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. The Bible is clear. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit living inside us. This is what gives us spiritual life. It's important to understand that the Holy Spirit is a person, not just a force. He's the third person of the Godhead. God himself and his function today is to live in believers and empower us for his service. Here's the truth. Unless the spirit is in you and unless you're yielded to him, you can have no life and you can accomplish nothing for God. But what does it mean to be filled with the spirit? It's not like filling a cup of water. Where you add more until there's no more room in the cup. See, if you're saved, you have as much of the presence of God living in you as you'll ever have. You can't get any more of him and you can't lose any of it either. To be filled with the spirit means to be yielded to or controlled by the spirit. See, there's a war that goes on in each of our hearts between the spirit and our own flesh, our own sinful desires. Have you felt that war going on inside of you this week? For instance, when we fear, that's not the spirit. That's our flesh. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. When we lust, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's our sinful flesh desiring to have something we don't need. When we get angry, Hey, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's a a reaction based on uncontrolled fleshly emotions. But when we love, when we're patient, when we forgive, when we pray, when we witness, that's the Holy Spirit in us. Those are all things led and controlled and produced by God. Here's how it works. We're filled with the Spirit to the degree that we're willing to say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. As we allow the Spirit to control us, the Spirit fills us, just like it did these early Christians. Which brings us to an important question, really the second movement of the text. What happens then when the Holy Spirit fills a believer? Well, let's see what happened in the church of Jerusalem after the Holy Spirit filled them. Are you still with me? Verse 5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven, Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded. They were confused because that every man heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? And then they they begin to mention all the kind of languages and people groups that were there. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers of Mesopotamia and in Judea, Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya under Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and 
uh, Arabians, and we, we do hear them speak in our tongues. Get this. Hear them speak in our tongues, our language, the wonderful works of God. What happens when believers are filled by the Holy Spirit? Here's one thing that happens. The Holy Spirit empowers them to boldly preach the gospel to all people. See, as a a sign of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit upon them, these believers... It says it in verse 11, begin to declare the wonderful works of God in many different languages that they hadn't studied or learned before. The text calls them other tongues. It's important for us to understand why this is necessary. Hear me. Jerusalem was a cosmopolitan city, which meant it was full of travelers and and residents from many different nations. On this particular morning, on the day of Pentecost, Hundreds of these people begin to hear God praised in their own language. The the text tells us they were primarily ethnic Jews. There were some non-Jewish converts to Judaism. They were all lost. They, They were originally from every corner of the known earth. Yet they heard this group of Galileans speaking to them in their own native language. In fact, 15 different languages are mentioned and represented. Now let me take a few minutes And explain what this speaking in other tongues was all about. This is not a Baptist interpretation. This is a Bible interpretation. Three observations. Number one, they were speaking in real languages that the crowd understood. Is that not clear in the text? Three different times the crowd confessed. How do they know our language? These Galileans, how are they so studied? In being able to articulate the gospel or whatever they're doing, the works of God, into our language. This is not some uh, heavenly made up language. People in Jerusalem understood every word that the apostles said. That is so clear in the text. I'm not making that up, friend. That's in there. They, the crowd confessed it. Number two, this is an unusual event, not normative. We'll run into this problem quite a few times as we interpret parts of the book of Acts. There's going to be some things in Acts that are normal for Christians uh, of all time, but there's going to be some things in Acts that were unique to that time period. That's an interpretation challenge, interpretive challenge that we'll face, and I hope to do it well. But, But we have to understand there's a mix of both in this book of the Bible. The wind and fire are never mentioned again in Scripture. Never. So they seem to be unique to this occasion. Speaking in tongues is referenced a few more times, but but doesn't seem to have been common even back then. See, Peter and the apostles are never again described as speaking in tongues. Did you know that? So, So although people disagree on this, that's fine. It seems like speaking in tongues was a special and temporary sign for that time period of transition. Doesn't seem to me that it was normative for Christians today. That's why if we want to translate the Bible, for instance, into the language of a jungle tribe in New Guinea, we don't fly ourselves to New Guinea and then hope the Spirit fills us and miraculously allows us to speak the Bible in their language. Missionaries will spend years studying and learning the language. Then they translate the Bible. And we rejoice in that, by the way. 
This is what's normal in terms of getting the gospel to the world. I'm not going to fly David, as smart as he is, to New Guinea somewhere in this jungle tribe and say, good luck with you and the Holy Spirit. I hope he gives you what he gave the apostles on this day. It doesn't happen that way. I believe it ceased. Speaking in tongues number three was given for a very specific purpose. The supernatural act of the Holy Spirit, it got the attentions of thousands in Jerusalem. Which you know what that did? It made them perk up for the sermon they were about to hear. We're going to study it next week. Peter gives us an amazing sermon. And when they saw these, these Galileans, many of them unlearned and ignorant men, as they'll describe them in Acts chapter 4, as they saw them speaking and articulating uh, the, the wonderful works of God in their known language, tell me that wouldn't get your attention. See, here's what's clear. The Holy Spirit had a purpose in this. He had an agenda in this. And you know what it was? It was a global agenda. This was the special purpose of these tongues. It wasn't so a big old show could be created, a circus could be created of people speaking languages no one understood in the building. That's not the purpose in this text. The purpose in this text was so that people from all around the world could understand the gospel that Peter was about to preach. Listen, God was not interested in saving just the people in Jerusalem. He made it clear in Acts 1.8 that the gospel must go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that process started this day in Jerusalem as people from many nations heard the gospel in their known language. So how does this apply to us today? We may not be supernaturally empowered by God to speak in other languages. But we must recognize, watch here, God's intent to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel through believers. The day of Pentecost teaches us that we should not limit the gospel to people like us. The poor need to hear the gospel and the rich need to hear the gospel. The citizen needs to hear the gospel and the immigrant needs to hear the gospel. The Republican needs to hear the gospel and the Democrat needs to hear the gospel. People in liberal Kansas need to hear the gospel and people in Indonesia need to hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit empowered these believers so that the gospel could be understood by all people. The Holy Spirit hadn't even come down for an hour before people from around the world were hearing the gospel. That tells us this is God's mission. This is God's agenda. And so as believers, hear me, we should yield to the Holy Spirit in our lives. Be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we have boldness, as did these 120 believers, to speak of the wonderful works of God to everyone we know. What's the essence of the text? Here it is. The Holy Spirit fills and empowers all believers to preach the gospel to all people. Later this week, religion might come up in one of your conversations. Your human weakness, if it's like mine, will tell you, hey, be quiet. Don't embarrass yourself. 
What will they think if you say something about God? If you're not careful, you'll listen to that fear. That's your flesh. But the Holy Spirit will speak up too if you're a child of God. And if you listen close enough, Holy Spirit will say, be bold. Remember that message on Sunday? Be kind, be gracious, be loving, but be bold. Say something. I'll help you. Declare the wonderful works of God. Christian, whose voice will you listen to this week? To whom will you yield? See, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit so that He, through us, can accomplish His his agenda to get the gospel to all people. I wonder today, if this area of sharing the gospel and reaching the lost needs to be brought back to life in, in your heart. I wonder how many in here have been proactive, aggressive, about inviting people to come with you to Fellowship Baptist Church on Sunday. Or if it's been a really long time since you've invited someone to come with you to church, you've fallen out of that habit completely. And maybe you can't remember the last time you had a gospel conversation with somebody you know is lost. I wonder if our church is really a church on mission today. I wonder. We all know the mission. What is it? Helping people find and follow Jesus. It's everywhere. We know it. It's in our DNA by now. Many support the mission. Over $300,000 above our regular tithes will be sent so missionaries can reach people with the gospel. We all get excited when the mission is fulfilled around here. I've never heard any boos when someone gets baptized. I wish you'd get a little more excited about it sometimes. But for the most part, people are pretty happy about those kind of things. I even see some of you sharing like positive things from the church on Facebook. But does that make our church a church on mission? I don't think our church is a church on mission until its members are filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to boldly preach the gospel to all people. I think that a lot of churches in our country have Christians that genuinely love God, genuinely believe in Jesus and repent of their sin, genuinely love their church, and believe everybody deserves to hear the gospel. But those same exact people seldom are the messengers. I think we have a lot of moms in here and your life is all about raising your kids. That's it. You just want to go to bed without killing yourself. You're just trying to keep your head above water. And so you can wake up and it's kids. You can go to bed and it's kids. That's it. That's your life right now. And you, you can't remember the last time you invited somebody, another mom, to church with you. Or a neighbor. You can't remember the last time you scheduled a play date at the park with someone that doesn't go to our church. Because your world is like that small. 
There's some men in here. And your world is as small as your wife's because it's just about your career. You were running from point A to point B, back to point A, back to point B. And you're working hard because you believe you ought to provide for your family. And that's a great thing. And you want to have integrity while you do it. And it'll be wise while you do it. But let's be honest, men, we're busy. And when we're not busy, we can just veg out. And I wonder, men, I wonder, all the men in here, I wonder when's the last time you saw a coworker as somebody who's going to either heaven or hell. Not as a business partner. Not as a customer. Not as a client. Not as somebody you're working for or with. Men, when's the last time somebody you work with, God or the, through the Holy Spirit told you, invite them to church and you did it. Young people, be easy for you to be so saturated in your own world. Your friends, your sports, your job, your video games, your social media, so saturated in your world that you can go months, months without ever inviting one of your friends on a Wednesday night to the youth service. Months. And not even think about it. You just go so you can have fun and see your friends. But you don't think about all the kids in our community that have never been invited to Fellowship Baptist Church. That's Tanner's job, right? No, that's yours. If I could turn around and put a mirror there, I'd preach to myself. And I would say something like this. Pastor, when is the last time you stopped writing a sermon? Stop leading a staff meeting? Stop organized vision for the church? Stop running the school? To go out into liberal, meet a sinner, and invite them to hear your sermon on Sunday. Because I can't tell you, I cannot tell you that I have invited somebody to my church to hear the sermon God laid on my heart. I cannot tell you honestly that I've done that every single week. I've written sermons, I've prepared the worship, I've done my job, but I have not invited anybody to come and hear the gospel. I'm just telling you, every single one of us need the Holy Spirit to take us out of our small little worlds, fill us and empower us to leave our little world and go out into the big world and bring them in. Watch here. We don't base our success at fellowship on how many come in on Sunday. We base our success by how many go out Monday through Saturday. I'm glad you're here. You need to be here. I need to be here. We need each other. We are commanded to assemble together. Commanded to assemble together. Church is not optional in the Bible. But we don't live here. We live out there. And you take the Holy, if you're a believer, you take the Holy Spirit everywhere. 
And he can empower you to do what you can't do in and of yourself. And let's be honest, he can remind you to do what you forget to do. Get outside of your world and get into the life of somebody else with the gospel. I want to give you three things to do this week, okay? Number one, I want you to pray. These aren't going to be on the screen. I just want you to remember them. I want you to pray a prayer of dependence and surrender to the Holy Spirit's control in your life every morning this week. Something like this. Father, help me to be yielded to the Holy Spirit. Sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And surrendered to the Holy Spirit. That I might be filled with the Holy Spirit. Pray that. Praying something makes you mindful of it. Pray. Number two. Look for opportunities the Holy Spirit will provide for you. To share the gospel or invite someone to church. Watch. The Holy Spirit will give you boldness. But you have to look for the opportunity. That's your job. He won't paint a billboard over a house saying, go knock on this door and invite them to church. He won't put something on a, on a co-worker's forehead saying, I'm lost and I need you to invite me to fellowship Sunday. But he will give you opportunities if you're looking for them. I call them divine appointments. You know what those are? Those are opportunities to share the gospel in the regular routines of life. He will give you those supernatural divine interactions. And you, if you're walking with God, you've prayed to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit, you are going to sense, I've got to invite this person. This is that opportunity I prayed for today. And then everybody should receive in their bulletin. It might have fallen out or you might not have gotten one. But everybody should receive one of these. This is an invite card that says, join me on Sunday. It has the times to our services and our address. And it has a, a QR code here that you can scan with your phone. And when they scan that with their phone, you ought to just do it sometime this afternoon. It'll take you directly to a, to a video on our website of a gospel presentation that I gave via video. It takes away all the, the, the nervousness, like, what am I going to say? And Do I know all the verses to go to? It's right there. It's right there. And it just, it simply says, join me on Sunday. Pastor Eli put together a, a design on that kiosk in the back foyer that says, change a life, invite a friend. I love that. It's so good. One invitation can change a life. But you have to pray for the Holy Spirit to show you, empower you and fill you, and you have to look for the opportunity, and then you have to hand it out. So I'm asking every person in this congregation, if you believe that God is in this place and can help people through this place, then I want you to hand out one of these this week. That's it. Now, hand out 10 if you'd like. But I want you to hand out at least one. And here's what we're going to do to close our service. There's some on the remembrance table if you didn't get any and you'd like to grab one. There's some in the kiosk in the foyer on your way out. There will be two more in the weeks ahead. We're going to put them everywhere in the foyer. I want everybody to take that out and hold it in their hand. Would you do that if you got it? If you don't have it, that's fine. I know choir members don't, sometimes don't get a bulletin. Um, if you don't have one, then there's going to be some up here and we'll get, you can come get one here in a second. We're going to have an invitation. That's where I invite Christians and even lost people to come and, and pray 
If you're lost, if you're like, man, I don't even know what the Holy Spirit is, let alone inviting someone to church. I got invited today by somebody. If that's you, then you just fill out a connect card. You fill out a connect card. You mark, mark on there that, that you want more information to believe. And Pastor David will call you this week, set up a time, and he'll explain all of this to you. It's awesome. But for saved people, this is how you respond to the message. I want us to either bring this to the altar in our hand, come get one, kneel at the altar, or I, want you to, I just want you to stay where you're at if that's what you're more comfortable doing. I want you to hold that in your hand, and I want you to pray, God, use this this week. Use this. Show me who needs it. And when I give it to that person, empower it. Help them to watch the video. Help them to come to fellowship. Give me courage to hand it out. Help me to not be so distracted with my small world that I just forget this in my car. Help me. I need your help this week. Are you with me? All right. Stand to your feet. Stand to your feet.